Um, I hope you get as much out of it as I got into preparing it because I was reading one of Ellen White's little books. It's called Education Like This. And I'd read this book about 25 years ago and I got a lot out of it. It was when I first started teaching. I had never taught before and I was asked uh, really on the spur of the moment if I would teach physics at Pacific Union College because a teacher resigned and I was working at a dental office nearby and I was a physics major in college. So the department chairman asked me if I would teach. I had no idea how to teach and never done it before. So I read the book, Education by Ellen White, and she said something in there which was, teach them what they need to know. Now most of my students were pre-med, pre-dent, pre-nursing. So I looked at their entrance exams for medical school and nursing school and I would focus on those things that were required for them to get into professional school. And I went through the textbook and I cut about a third of the textbook out. And it was the more difficult parts. These were not on any entrance exam. And because I cut out a lot of material from the textbook, it was much easier for the students. And the, the average grade in the class went from before I taught it, the average grade was a C. After I taught it, the average grade was an A minus. And the students were really, really happy about that because they needed a good grade to get into nursing school or medical school or dental school. And they were just ecstatic. In fact, I had students, uh, when they heard the class was getting easier, the students were coming and begging me, please let me in your class, you know. Um, and I would try my best to let them in. So it, it worked out really good, yeah, with the average grade of A minus. And some of the kids took the MCAT exam, and after the MCAT exam to get into medical school, they came back and told me that they had gotten a 96th percentile on the physics part of the examination. And I owe all of that success to reading the book Education and the t tips and information she gave me. Now that really changed my attitude about Ellen White's writings. Beforehand, I really hadn't read much of Ellen White's books. And my roommate, when I was in dental school, he was a medical, actually a resident in orthopedic uh, surgery. And uh, I'm going to have a little teaser after the sermon today. I recently got back from a mission trip to Peru with the dental school, and I'd like to take another time to go over all of that with you, but I want to show you just a few photos uh, from the trip uh, and because it was really, really an exciting. It was the, one of the best, most exciting mission trips that I think that I've ever been on. We went to... Um, Cusco, and we worked in the villages around Cusco, and I'll just show you a very, very few of the photos from there, and uh, let's set this down for a minute. So, now... 
Oh, it's a little bit fuzzy. Uh -huh. They're look. I guess they came out low resolution, but anyway. Oh. Well, sorry about the res. We'll have to. Uh, I'll have to download higher resident. Here's some of the children in the first village we went to work in, and these kids are the cutest kids. And unlike, what did I do with the card here? Okay. These little children in the village. If you're going to a little village in Peru, in the in the remote countryside, the kids will just walk up to you and they'll start talking to you. And they're very, very friendly. Uh, even the teenage girls, who in most countries are pretty reserved, um, you know, they're kind of, if they see a stranger, they stay away. They'll come up and they'll talk to you and they ask you where you're from. And if you go walking down the street, there'll be four or five dogs that will follow you and they don't, they don't bark. They, don't, they just kind of follow you around and they're wagging their tails and they're really friendly. They have the friendliest dogs I have ever seen in any country in the world. And I was trying to figure out why are these animals so nice. Um, and even the, the alp we were staying at an eco-resort and they had alpacas and llamas there. And the alpacas, we, if you walked out in the field where the alpacas were, and I've heard that some of the like llamas and some of these other animals are kind of not friendly. They'll spit on you. And these uh, alpacas would just walk up to you. They'd put their head on your shoulder. They were like really, really, they'd want to be. And if you were hugging one, the other one would get jealous and would try to n nose in because they all wanted to be hugged. And it was just astonishing. I have never been in a country where the animals were so friendly and, and nice. And I was trying to figure out why are the animals so friendly? And I was watching the animals in the village. And the reason the animals are so friendly is the people are really nice to the animals. Even the stray dogs, uh, they treat them like they belong to the whole village and they will feed them. We had, at the resort we were staying in, it was actually an Adra resort. They had about two big dogs that were like Labradors and they would feed them from the kitchen and they would just, everybody took care of the animals and each other and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before, this kindness that people showed to each other. And it was the only country I've ever been to where... You just downloaded the low res. Okay. I'll... So, well, this will just be a teaser. But it was the only country I'd ever been to where I felt like I would like to retire there because the people were so nice to each other. I thought it would be really nice. But anyway, I'm sorry these are low res. We'll have to go through. I'll, next time I give a sermon, we'll give higher. But the kids were really friendly. And here's us working in the first village we went into. And we're setting up equipment and trying to get all set up. And here we're working on a patient. And here's the dental hygiene students. Now the dental hygiene students, notice they're working on a, a pew from a church. We're inside a church and they have the pew bench set up and the patients are sitting up in the chair and the hygienist had to work standing up all day long like this. 
kind of bent over like this. And that's the way Dennis used to do it 100 years ago or even about 60 years ago. They would work standing up. And one of my teachers, um, Dr. Lloyd Baum, who was a very good teacher, he spent most of his life working like standing up. And so now, now, last time I talked to him, he was like 80 years old, and he walks around like this all the time now. Seriously? Seriously. He's, he's, been, he's permanently been over like this because he spent his whole life working like this. And so when I talk to him, I have to go, hi, Dr. Baum, how are you? Oh, wow. <laughs> and get underneath him. But these hygienists, they're all looking up now because I asked them to smile for the photos but they're all bent over when they're working. And they told me at the end of the day they were pretty tired from bending over like that. And um, so you're going to take someone like me along. I'm sorry? That's why you have to take them in front of therapists like this. Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah, they were really, really sore afterwards. They were complaining about it. Um, you can even see one of the dental students is kind of bent over. Um, so it was a little bit challenging, but one of the good things about, here's some of the students were um, getting ready to, to go out and work. We're, we're at the Adra Resort having breakfast. And the countryside, now I wish this was higher res, but you can't see it very well, but there's terracing. You can start, sort of see horizontal lines. And that's the hotel room. It was really, really nice. And they had, I mean, it was the middle of summer there. Um, we were there actually during this, the summer solstice, the longest day of the summer. And it was about 50 degrees inside that room. And there were three blankets on that bed, and I needed all of them because when you're in a 50-degree room, it's, it seems pretty cold. And the showers were a real challenge because... Uh, the room is cold, and it's, it's really a, uh, really hard. And there was only a little bit of hot water, and we had so many people there that the hot water would disappear after about five minutes. So it was a challenge. But they made wonderful vegetarian. There was lots of fruits and strawberries and different uh, homemade breads. And so they had wonderful food for us. Nobody got sick while we were there. There were 27 of us. And nobody got sick. And here is the view from right in front of the resort. Whoops, looks like that's the last picture. I want to go back to something happened here. Well, I think we have. Okay, let me go back to the terracing. You can see a little bit of the terracing here. Now, that terracing, the vast majority of it is no longer farmed. They only farm down in the valley. They'll grow corn down there. But 500 to 1,000 years ago, they used to, to terrace. In fact, the terracing goes almost all the way up the mountain. You can see some horizontal lines near the top. And the Incas, who lived in the valleys in those times, they built experimental farms that at different altitudes, there was one, Benjamin was telling me, they built these experimental farms that were at 
that were about two to 300 meters in diameter, and about every 500 feet higher in elevation, they would level another farming area, and then they would grow experimental crops to see which crops grew at which altitude. Because we went into a village where there was, we were 13,000 feet above sea level. We were like 2,000 feet above the tree line there. And the people were growing, there was a species of potatoes that grew really well. And they were growing, that's how the whole village survived, potatoes and sheep and goats is how they survived. And it's, they're very, very poor. They're subsistence farmers. And when we got there, they cooked a meal in our honor. And they took a 55-gallon oil drum, cut it in half, because they wanted to make food for, there was about 27 of us, and they put that outside on some rocks, and they put wood under it and built a fire, and they uh, cooked a, some lamb and some potatoes for us, and there was no knives, forks, or plates, or any of these other accoutrements that we're used to, and we would go there. The, the mayor of the village ushered us over there, and when we got there, the cooks, there were about three or four cooks, and they were using like broomsticks to stir everything up, and they would just reach into the pot and take a hunk of meat and a potato and just hand it to you. And uh, so, you know, you have these, a hunk of lamb and a potato and you're just kind of eating it out of your hand. And I actually ate it. I was kind of, I was really afraid because I used to work in Bangladesh. And if you did that in Bangladesh, you ran, you would certainly get Giardia lambia and dysentery and lots of other diseases. And so I was kind of really nervous about it, but I went ahead and eat it, ate a little bit, to be polite. And I didn't get sick. Everybody did really well. So it was really astonishing. Um, now, when we were getting ready to leave, the ADRA director took us out for dinner, uh, for a lunch at this Chinese restaurant. And I sat next to him and talked to him, and he said, the diets of the people in Peru is terrible. If you go into their, stop, their little stores, I, I, someone else took a picture of one of their little, they have little shops that are like six feet by eight feet, and they sell rice and beans and potatoes and Coca-Cola and Fanta and 7-Up and, and Sprite, and they've got, you know, there's like, I saw one store, a third of the stock was soft drinks in this store. And so people are drinking a lot of soft drinks and their teeth are rotting out. And uh, there were ki little kids that came into our clinic while they were like 10, 12 years old and they had black teeth. I mean, just like every other tooth was black. And the older people would come in and, and they have half of their teeth missing when they come in. Now, we went as a dental team, and you could go in, we could go, we could send 10,000 dentists to 10,000 villages in Peru, and it, would, it wouldn't scratch the surface of the amount of need that these people have for medical and dental care. And so the ADRA director says we desperately need the School of Public Health or some nutritionists or some cooks to put together a cooking program and a nutrition program for each village, you know, even if it's just a brochure or a video or a demonstration, if you could get the School of Public Health to come back here next year 
and, and do demonstrations in the villages how to cook um, simple, hopefully vegetarian food without using a lot of sugar, it would be a incredible blessing to the people of Peru. So he was literally begging us to come back with the health message for the people of Peru. And it's, it will be no mean feat. It will not be easy because uh, Peru is a country of, what is it, about 20 million people that live in Peru. And there are 1,700 Seventh-day Adventists in the entire country. So they are an extreme minority. And next time I give a sermon, I'm going to show you one of our workers. There was a woman um, in one of the remote villages who organized us to come in and help out. And she's walking around the whole time. She's trying to get everything organized. And she's got a little, they take a blanket, uh, one of these colorful Peruvian blankets, and they wrap it around themselves, and the, baby, and the little child is sitting in this blanket. So she's walking around all day carrying this baby in a blanket on her back as she's trying to get everything organized. It was, it was really, it really touched my heart, and she was so grateful that we had come. So now, talking about the School of Public Health, I just heard yesterday that the enrollment at the School of Public Health at Loma Linda University has gone from about 500 down to 250. And so there's the enrollment is way, way down. So there is some fear that we may lose the School of Public Health at Loma Linda, which I think would be a real tragedy. But the problem is apparently that the students are graduating there with master's degrees and some with PhDs and some with nutrition degrees, but they're just not finding a lot of jobs. I mean, if you have a PhD in public health, you can work for the state of California, but it's pretty hard to get a job somewhere else if you're not working for the federal or state government, because there's not a lot of people that want masters or PhDs in nutrition. Although, from an economic point of view, from what I saw in Peru, they need public health and nutrition education much, much more than they need the services that I provide. I mean, they need desperately need dentists, but if they could get the health message down there, they wouldn't need my services down there. So the, the ADRA director was begging us to send a team to do health education. And a few years ago, I called up the... Inter-America Division headquarters, which covers Peru. And I said, do you have any brochures or pamphlets or booklets or videos or YouTube or anything on nutrition and health um, in Spanish that we can give to the people of South America? And they said, no, we don't have anything. So there is this desperate need for us to... Uh, the, find a way to deliver the health message to the people of South America and Central America. And it's something that we're really falling down in. And I'm praying that we will, I pray that we will find a way to get the message on YouTube or in videos or, or something to help the people because they desperately need it. I mean, even when we were there in the clinic, there were people standing around right outside the door drinking soft drinks and, and the Western diet is destroying them. Now, I used to work in Africa also, 
And when I went into the remote African villages, and this was like 30 years ago, before they were westernized and there was no Coca-Cola or soft drinks, the people had beautiful teeth. I went into villages and we examined the people and there was not a cavity in the whole village. Nobody in the village that I looked, I mean, some of these were small villages, but there were no cavities, no tooth decay. And now, because of the westernization and the presence of soft drinks, their health is deteriorating terribly. They're developing diabetes, they develop obesity, um, it's, it's really bad. So the health, there's a, a great need for the health message. So anyway, that's just a teaser, and I'd like to thank Ben who um, put this slideshow together. I think it took you about 30 seconds to do this. Um, I'm sorry I downloaded low-res pictures, but next time I will get high-res for you. And um, we also, at the end of the trip, we went to Machu Picchu, which is a city in the clouds, and I was astonished there. And we happened to be there on the day of the summer solstice, and apparently their temple is lined up so that the sun will shine through a certain window of one of the temples and illuminate their altar or something like that. But it was an overcast, cloudy day, so we didn't get to, we missed that. But there were, uh, the day we were there, I think there were like 4,000 people that came to see this uh, summer solstice thing, but it, we all missed it anyway. But it, yeah, there were 4,000 people there uh, it, was, it was pretty crowded. Anyway, I want to get back to the book Education. And as I was saying, when I read the book Education, it really changed my opinion about Ellen White's writings. Before that, I didn't really know who she was. And in fact, um, my roommate, uh, his name is Edgar, was talking about Ellen White. He was reading Desire of Ages or something. And, and uh, I had just gotten baptized. And he, I, I said, well, who's Ellen White? And he goes, who's Ellen White? You mean you don't know who Ellen White is? You haven't read any of her books? And you got baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist? Don't you know that the, that the confessions of faith that you had assigned to become baptized say that you believe in the spirit of prophecy? How can you believe in something that you don't know anything about? He goes, this is really, really terrible. And he was so upset that I didn't know who Ellen White was that he marched, I had just gotten baptized a few weeks before, he marched down to the church office at the Hill Church where I was, and he insisted that I be um, not dismembered, uh, disfellowshipped, yeah, disfellowshipped <laughs> uh, from the church because I didn't know who Ellen White was. And the pastor of the church had to explain to him, well, no, you have to believe in the spirit of prophecy, small, the small spirit, small prophecy, small, you know, caps. Uh, it just means that you believe God can inspire people. You don't necessarily have to believe in Illinois to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And so the pastor calmed him down, and he came back and told me that he tried to get me disfellowship, but they wouldn't disfellowship me. And so he was really disappointed. And uh, so... Um, but Edgar and I are still very good friends. And, but anyway, it piqued my curiosity, and I started trying to read her books a little bit to find out who she was. But I didn't really seriously read one until I read this book, Education. And I was astonished by what I read because there was wisdom in there that I thought I couldn't write one 
paragraph of this book if I had to do it myself. I mean, the wisdom that was in there, the knowledge, the insight. And so it really helped me to become a teacher. I could not have become a teacher without it. I would have tortured the students, just like all the previous physics teachers had done. And a lot of the students, I mean, the average grade was a C. That meant about a third of the, or a little less than a third of the class was getting Ds and Fs in this thing. And if you got a D or an F in physics and you're trying to apply to medical school or to, or nursing, that's it, you're out. And so there were kids that were in tears because of the grades they got. And so they were really happy that we found a way, or I should say Ellen White found a way to get them through this difficult course and have them do well. In fact, one of the students, he was put, he was on academic probation and his mother was a senior administrator, administrator of Pacific Union College. And she came to me personally and met with me and begged me to please help her son get through the course and, and get, you know, at least to hopefully get a B to bring his grade point up so he wouldn't get kicked out of school. He ended up getting an A minus in the class and he was so ecstatic uh, and delighted he applied to become a med tech at uh, the, our hospital in Florida and he was accepted into the program and became a med tech. And the mother says, if you had not helped him to do well in that one class, he would never have been able to go on. Now, what was amazing to me is that, so I started tutoring him and we were trying to do a, a homework problem and he could not do a simple algebra problem. This class was designed so that if you know algebra, in geometry, you could pass this class. You didn't have to know calculus or anything. It was a fairly simple course mathematically, just algebra mostly. He couldn't do, he could not do simple algebra. So I spent about 15 minutes teaching him three rules of algebra. Move the unknown to the left side, move everything else to the right side, and if the unknown is multiplied by a factor of three, divide everything by three to get rid of it, and then you've solved the problem. And so I taught, taught him three simple steps of algebra, and he was able to get an A minus in this class. And from, he told me that, I said, how come you never, no one ever taught you how to do this before? He said, all my other teachers thought that I was too stupid to waste time on. So they never bothered to, you know, I, I was doing really poorly, I couldn't, do, I was doing bad in all the math and all the science classes and I was at the bottom of the class and, and he, went from, he went from being a, like a D student to being a B, B, B minus student and I only spent a little bit of time with him to try to find out what was he deficient in and how could we provide a simple way to bring him up to speed. And I really have to credit all that to uh, reading this book, Education. Now, time went on, 25 years passed, and we are here today, and I sat down and started reading this book again. And I am convinced that it's a completely different book than the one I read 25 years ago, because there's information in here that I never saw before, and I'm sure that Ellen White must have updated it uh, since it was last last, I'm sure she did, so somehow she did that because it's a completely different book. And one of the things that astonished me 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first summarize it, and then I'm going to read it to you, was that she said that when we need to consider what God's purpose was in creating mankind, she said it was his purpose that we would, under his guidance, his love, his, his presence and education, we would grow in wisdom and understanding in knowledge of the wonders of the universe, how the universe worked, and our, we, would, we would slowly discover our moral responsibilities and that we would continually grow. It was his purpose. If I can give an analogy, we were born, you might say, or created, we were like little infants. We were ignorant, inexperienced, and it was his goal that we grow in knowledge and understanding, not just in our lifetimes, but, I mean, for, for all eternity. So he had this vision for us that we were going to be this kind of expanding, growing being that was going to constantly grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And we threw that all away when we sinned because God, we could no longer stand in the presence of God and I don't know. I mean, that was kind of hard for me to understand that God wouldn't. But as a teacher, I worked with some students. And if I have a student that flagrantly disobeys my instructions and disregards them and just does whatever he or she thinks is best, and I, I kind of give up trying to help them. I mean, they don't want my advice. They don't follow it. What can you do? I can't follow them around. There were a few times that I actually tried I had students that would just disregard everything I say, and I would kind of follow them and say, no, need, you need to do this and you need to do that. And they wrote very critical reviews of my performance as a teacher, that I was, um, I was slowing down their progress, I was interfering with their work in the lab and on the clinic, and so they were very critical. And so I've kind of learned, if someone doesn't want your advice, I leave those students alone. I just completely leave them alone. The ones that ask me for help, I will go in, I mean, in the, I'm teaching a lab class now, and I will frequently stay till 7 o'clock, and I've stayed occasionally till 10.30 at night. I go in on Sundays to help them, and they're extremely grateful when, when I go in to help them. In fact, I had a performance review. Now, usually, I, I have to admit, I get terrible performance reviews at work because my supervisors say I don't, follow, I don't follow protocol, procedures, policies, manuals. I just kind of do, I always ask myself, what's the best thing for the patient? And once I make that determination, then I ignore everything else and try to do what's best for the patient. And I get into trouble for that all the time. So my performance reviews are really terrible. In fact, I've had four department chairmen tell me that I should resign. I don't belong at the university. I should quit. If, they don't, if I don't quit, they're going to fire me. Fortunately, every time I had a department chairman tell me that, they got fired before they could fire me. So I was like, <laughs> that happened about uh, three times, two or three times. I, people say, I'm gonna, we're going to fire you at the end of the quarter. And, but by the end of the quarter, they were gone. So that problem disappeared. And I think that was divine protection because I really, really feel like the good Lord was protecting me because um, they got fired, not me. 
In fact, one time when a, when a department chairman said, you're not, you're not going to be working here at the end of the quarter, I thought to myself, you've spoken well. One of us in this room won't be working here at the end of the quarter. And it turned out to be the department chairman wasn't working. So I really feel like the Lord has blessed me. But anyway, when I teach this lab class and I stay late to help the kids, the kids are really grateful. And when I had my last performance review, I was told that I had the most responses that a teacher had ever gotten, because usually the kids don't even fill out these performance reviews, and that they were all positive, which had never happened before. And so they were really, was really surprised. In fact, the, the person that gave me my performance review had told me to resign three times. She had told me, you need to resign, you don't belong here. And then she gave me this performance review based on the student's assessment that it was the best that she'd ever seen. So that was uh, an incredible blessing. And now, I want to, so Mrs. White makes three main points in the first four chapters of the book. Number one is that God envisioned us to grow and in knowledge and understanding. She also said that God gave us creative powers, free will and understanding, and he expected us to be able to go out and solve problems and be creative. Like, um, and I'll just use normal everyday analogies, but he, God wanted us to excel in the sciences, in the arts, in theology and moral understanding, and he wanted us to become great musicians and great artists and great scientists and great mothers and fathers and statesmen and great students. He had all these wonderful plans for us. Now, but we sinned, and that was all lost. But she points out Christ came to redeem us and set us back on the path where we could grow in understanding and wisdom and knowledge. And after I read that, I was just like completely blown away because I realized that God wanted, he still wants great things for us. He wants us to be successful and to be wise and understanding and to be a blessing to everyone around us. She said all these gifts were given to us so that we could be of service to others. Now, I'm going to start reading here what she said. And the first part is God's plans for us. In order to understand what is comprehended in the work of education, we need to consider both the nature of man and God's purpose in creating him. We need to consider also the change in man's condition through the coming in of a knowledge of evil and God's plan for still fulfilling his glorious purpose in the education of the human race in spite of the presence of evil. When Adam and Eve came from the Creator's hand, Adam bore in his physical nature, his physical, mental, and spiritual nature, a likeness to his nature, and likeness to his maker. It says in Genesis, God created man in his own image. And it wasn't just a visual image, it was a spiritual image. And it was his purpose that the longer man lived, 
the more fully he should reveal this image. In other words, it wasn't like I've created you in absolute perfection, which I'm sure he did under the circumstances, but he intended us to be growing. The longer man lived, the more fully he should reveal this image, the more fully reflect the glory of the Creator. All his faculties were capable of development. Their capacity and vigor were continually to increase. And I, I read that and I kind of just, I mean, it, I, I almost fell over when I read that because it's like, Okay, I went to school when I graduated. I thought, Phew, I'm done. I'm, you know, I don't have to study anymore. I don't have, and I talked to a lot of students. I say, what are you going to do after graduation? And they're, I, they don't want to go to school anymore. They want, to, they, they want it all to end. But God's purpose was that we should grow continually and continue. And so I actually try to encourage the students, look, you need to continue to learn, continue to advance your education all of your life. And when you graduate, if you can do a residency, um, it would, you, I, I say to them, I say, look, I want you to do a residency when you, when you graduate because I don't want you to end up to become a glorified idiot like I am. Okay? I want you to continually to grow in knowledge. And there's a few that have actually taken that advice, but the vast majority don't. They just want to stop. Anyway, she writes, all of his faculties were capable of development. Their capacity and vigor were continually to increase. Vast was the scope offered for, the, for their exercise. Glorious the fields open to their research. The mysteries of the visible universe, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge, this was open to their understanding. Now, I look at religion as it was practiced in the Middle Ages, and during the Middle Ages, it was thought that only the priests could understand the Bible. And there were only a select few who could get an education and become knowledgeable and wise and understanding. And when I read this, I realized that that was a, a false paradigm, a false theory of humanity. It was God's intention that we all grow in wisdom and knowledge and grace. He wants us to excel. I mean, look at the education of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. They received education from the king of Babylon, but they were also receiving guidance and instruction from the Lord of hosts through the Holy Spirit. And what happened when they were examined by the king of Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar? What? They were 10 times smarter than their instructors. And I believe that that's God's intention for all of us, especially for you young people who are in school. I fully expect that you are going to be 10 times wiser, more benevolent, more compassionate, more knowledgeable than your teachers if you allow the good Lord to guide and direct you. And I've actually seen that happen. I've had students in school who 
they'll be doing a difficult procedure and they will figure out a unique way of solving it that we never taught to them. And I'm going, how did they do this? How did they know? And I say, how did you know how to do this? I've never seen anybody do this procedure before. And they said, oh, I don't know. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And I really believe that the Lord is guiding them and leading them. And in fact, I had a student the other day who he was restoring a tooth that was badly decayed. When he was all done, it looked like a virgin tooth that had never had any. I mean, he did, it was artwork when he was done. And when he was all done, I said to him, I said, I wish all my restorations would come out as good as yours. To, so I said that to the student. I, I mean, some of them just do, they're very gifted. They're gifted with their hands. They're gifted with, some of them are really good at, at managing patients, um, getting them to comply and, and turning them around, taking patients that are uncooperative and turning them into cooperative, willing patients. In fact, I see something at the dental school that I, I never see at an outside clinic. I'll have a patient come in, usually they're an older one, like 65, 75, 80 years, five, and they come into the clinic and we say, I said, why did you come in to see us today? And they say, oh, I don't know. I haven't been here for a while and, and I miss my student. I just wanted to come in and say hello and visit with my student. Now, have you ever heard of anybody going to see a doctor just because they want to visit, they want to say hello and visit? And, and I hear that like two or three times a month. And these, these patients love their providers because think about it. Let's say you're old, you're 80 years old, you live by yourself, maybe your husband or wife has passed away, your children have moved, you're living by yourself, there's nobody to talk to. You live alone in your home, and you just, it's like being in solitary confinement. So if there's a young person that's interested and will talk to you and spend, I mean, these students spend four hours with one patient. And so, you know, you can go in and talk and they'll tell stories and, and it's just astonishing. So some of these patients come in just because they're lonely. But I think that's a really nice reflection on, on the school. Now, she writes, the mysteries of the visible universe invite man's study. Face-to-face, heart-to-heart communion with his maker was his high privilege. Had he remained loyal to God, all of this would have been his forever. It's just amazing. Throughout eternal ages, he would have continued to gain new treasures of knowledge, to discover fresh springs of happiness, to obtain a clearer and yet clearer conceptions of the wisdom, power, and love of God. More and more fully would he have fulfilled the object of his creation. More and more fully would he have reflected the Creator's glory. It was God's purpose that we become wise and knowledgeable and understanding, that we become compassionate, and that we be a light in our community. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I have classmates that have already retired. And I'd say about a third of my classmates that I graduated, I graduated in 1982, and at least a third of them have retired. 
And so I'm starting to think a little bit about retirement, not very much, but um, my dad worked till he was 82 years old, and the only reason he quit is he fell and he broke his hip, and it was a really, really bad fracture, and he was in the hospital for six months, but I don't think he would have quit if he hadn't broken his hip. So I'm hoping to work until at least I'm 82, so, okay, at least, okay, if I don't fall. So, you know, I, I do think a little bit about retirement, but then I read stuff like this, and it's like, no, wait a minute. I have a lot more than I, I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to do. There's still things that you need to discover and write down, and, and, and look, there's still a lot more work to do. says, but by disobedience, this was all forfeited. Through sin, the divine likeness was marred and well nigh obliterated. Man's physical powers were weakened. His mental capacity was lessened. His spiritual vision dimmed. He became subject to death. Yet, the race was not left without hope. This is, was really encouraging here. By infinite love and mercy, the plan of salvation had been devised, and a life of probation was granted to restore in man the image of his maker. Now, in other words, well, let me finish this. To bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to bring him back to the perfection. In other words, there's hope for us. When I graduated from high school, some, a friend of mine wrote in my yearbook, good luck, you are going to need it. Okay? In other words, you know, I graduated from high school and I thought, boy, you know, things are looking pretty bleak for me. Uh, I was not a very good student and, you know, things didn't look good. But she says, she writes here, by infinite love, the plan of salvation was devised and a life of probation was granted to restore in man, man the image of his maker, to bring, him, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created. In other words, there's hope for us, regardless of how low that we've sunk. To promote the development of mind, body, and soul, that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was the work of redemption. This is the object of education, the great object of life. So God has, even though that we've sinned and we've forfeited his personal instruction, he's, he sent us Christ and the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. And I think, in other words, there's still hope for us. Even though we've fallen, we've stumbled, he still has a plan to help us. Now, and this really encouraged me, and I when I think about these things, I actually feel younger now than I did when I was 25 because I have this hope, this, you know, God has wonderful plans for us and he can help us to succeed and to do great things. I know that there are people in this audience for whom God has planned great things. I was talking to the former uh, assistant to the Comptroller, is that how you pronounce it, of the university? And she was telling me that they are planning to, when the new hospital is built, have primary care delivered mostly, in the vast majority, by PAs and NPs. 
and physicians are going to play a, a minor, more minor role in delivering healthcare. It is their goal to have nurse practitioners provide a great deal of the care. And PAs, physicians, is there anybody here in the PA program here? Well, there's a big place for you in the future of the hospital. In fact, um, they were having some problems with accreditation at the PA program, and she told me that the president of the university has committed all resources possible to trying to improve the situation at the PA program to make sure that it works because the PA program is an essential and necessary part of the vision 2020 for the university. And they're gonna do everything they can to try, to try to make sure that they get in compliance with accreditation. In fact, a friend of mine uh, is thinking of, grad, of applying to the PA program and they're going, I'm not sure I wanna to go to Loma Linda because they're having accreditation programs. And I said, no, I don't think that that's gonna last very long because I, the president has committed, made a commitment to make sure that this works. Is, have you heard anything to verify? Okay. Okay. Yeah, assessment or evaluating the students has become a very important part of education in the last 10 years. In fact, the way that we used to assess the dental students is they would graduate and then the state of California would give them an examination that had like four parts to it. It was a two-day exam. And so they spent two days being assessed. But now the state of California wants us to do it before they graduate. So we don't have a four-part examination. We have a 19-part exam for the students. It's, it's approximately five times longer than the, than the way it was before. And I have roughly calculated the cost of all this assessment. And, and I believe it's costing us about $70,000 to do this. Wow. It's very, very expensive. So assessment, the, the state and the accrediting bodies have kind of forced this on us. And it's, it's a real burden. It is an incredible burden. Anyway, uh, it's getting a little bit late. And, but I'd encourage you to go back and read the book, Education. And I assure you that when you read it today, it will be a completely different book than the one you read 25 years ago. It's been, up, it's been greatly updated. So... Um, I was very encouraged by it. I'm only on chapter four, so I'm gonna, I've got more chapters. There's about 20 chapters in this book. So I'll hopefully have a lot more good news to report to you. But I was really encouraged by this because she says that even though we've fallen and we forfeited the privileges that we had, you could say we got, it's like getting kicked out of college. We got kicked out of school by sinning. In fact, I had a student come to me yesterday and got kicked out which was really tragic. But God says, look, I have a, I have, Christ is going to make a way to redeem you and provide you maybe with an alternate or different type of education, but we still have great plans for you. And that encouraged me very much. May God bless you all. Thank you.